Hello. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies podcast. It's... Hey, Michael. Did you get a taxi back to my uh, Her car. Yeah. Our driver. <laughs> yeah, our personal driver. Our personal driver. Oh, yes. Uh, it's Toby Miller here, and I'm in the Hotel Upper in Santa Barbara, and I'm here with... Someone I've known for a very long time, Professor Miranda Banks, somebody I've only just met, but whose work I've known for a long time, whom I deeply admire, Professor Elisa Perrin, who is a mean chauffeur. Her parallel parking could possibly do with a little work. Hey, Teja. So we now know we're going for dinner later at the... Carlitos. Carlitos. So, Miranda. Yes. Well, you know, tell us about what you're working on these days, as I have a Oh, you're doing that. Third vegan Oreo. Yes, we're doing that podcast. You're doing it now. I thought you would have done it. They're not vegan. They're not vegan. It's not. It's fake. That's fake. Is it? Oh, it's totally fake. It's just the color. They say, like, McDonald's fries were vegetarian. No, they're the last desperate stand of vegans all over the world. You see an Oreo. Oh, really? Believe me. Yeah. No. So you lucked out. Dinner, pre-dinner. Pre-dinner. Yes. So, um, so what I'm working on right now is just I'm just finished a book uh, mm. that's on. Uh, it's called The Writers: uh, A History of American uh, Screenwriters and the Writers Guild. So, um, it's uh, a book I've been working on for quite a number of years that is about uh, the Writers Guild from the 1920s up into the present day and uh, kind of looking at key moments of crisis and how the job of writing has changed uh, and how the Writers Guild has responded uh, to it. And um, a lot of it is based on oral histories with writers that I've done. Uh, as well as oral histories that the Writers Guild had as well. Of its own? Yeah. But how did you get turned on to this topic? What interested you? Um, well, I grew up in Los Angeles, and uh, my two... I love people who grew up in Los Angeles. <laughs> I, I mean, I hate them so much, but anyway, yeah. I grew up in Los Angeles. So, so did millions of others, but they didn't write books about the Writers I know, Guild. This is a true. very bad answer. Sorry. As I said, this is not confrontational. It's all softball. Right, it's very right. girly. You know. So anyway, you grew up in Los Angeles. Right. Um, and I, my, you know, I grew up on stories of Hollywood. My grandmother was a coat check girl at the Biltmore Hotel and was there. Oh, the Biltmore Hotel with the greatest swimming pool in the history of the world. Exactly. And uh, my grandmother was a coat check girl uh, the, when the night that Judy Garland sang to Clark Gable, You Made Me Love You. And, uh, and um, Groucho Marx. I didn't Marx. want to. <laughs> you made me. Yeah, no, you're going to have to sing for this. <laughs> uh, Groucho Marx came out with his ukulele and played to all the Kochek girls and the cigarette girls. And my grandparents used to go dancing at the Trocadero and run into uh, uh, Rita Hayworth and um, Orson Welles. And so I kind of grew up on those stories. And my two. I just want to touch her green sweater. Yeah. <laughs> My two closest friends, uh, 
yeah, from childhood, uh, both of them, I'm their parents, both of them, the fathers were TV writers. Uh, one of them, uh, Abby Schiller, her father is Bob Schiller, who's a writer on I Love Lucy and a writer on on The Family and Maud. Uh, and the other was Chris Levinson, who is a writer herself, but her father was also the creator of Columbo and Murder, She Wrote. And so, I, so you're bitching at your parents all the time because they're doing what? <laughs> they're failing. They are not. They are not in the entertainment. They're failing the task laid out for them by history, right? What, what were they wasting their time? Yeah, they were wasting their time being pretty good parents in comparison to a lot of all these other fancy So, so you've got your parents. Your parents are doing something different, but yeah. for you, the exciting thing is the industry. Well, when you're it wasn't. It wasn't a, a desire to be a part of it. The love was of the stories. Like I just loved hearing the stories. And in my, um, I was about 15 years old when I took a class that was half production, video production, and half film analysis uh, in high school. And I loved doing the film analysis and I tried to make a music video and no one showed up on time the actor that I wanted was flaky you know and I just said I, I'm done with this I can't handle dealing with other people and how you know irresponsible they are I love writing about things and uh, so the I said, you know, this is this is what I love. It's the history. I love the culture. And then uh, my freshman year in college, I took a class that uh, was with Henry Brightrose, who was a very smart man. Um, but I forgive me for this going out into the world, but uh, not the most inspiring professor and lecturer. And I loved every moment of class. And I said, I want to be as uninspiring as you are when I grow up. Exactly. I said, I said, I love this stuff. I want to study it forever. And I think I might be able to teach it better than this guy. So. How interesting. Where did you go to college? Stanford. Stanford, which is in? Oh, Northern California. Northern California. So up uh, Bay Area, Silicon Valley. Fancy private school. It's a very fancy private school, yes. So we Stanford and... It's a research university, but not gigantic. It's, it's quite state. large. It's, it is quite large um, as a university. So I, um, it was only in my junior or senior year where I really had access to professors. Before then, there was a lot of TAs. So, so teaching assistants who are graduate students who right. make a little extra coin and make some coin. Like, right, you know, doing all the hard work. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but I, I loved Stanford and I knew I I wanted to be a film professor, and so I took whatever classes were available. Um, was that art there? history? No, I, I was an English major with an honors in humanities. But was art history the area where the film studies? No, it was. Everyone in film studies was in a different department. There was no organized. So some were in communication, some were in English, some were in drama, some were in the languages. And, and so at 1920. You knew you wanted to be a professor. Yeah, I wanted to be a film professor. I know. I might be the only one who realized that so soon. So um, I, I feel very lucky. I've always known what I wanted to do. And then, did you know 
about age that you wanted to write this book no. about writing? No, I, but it was as if I was destined to do it. I mean, it when... Um, so my, I ended up doing my dissertation with John Caldwell, who... Is that the event that we're attending? And this yes. professor at UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles, where Miranda did her right. And who's a practitioner and a theorist, and uh, does his, much of his work is theorizing media workers and and media cultures. Um, and I ended up working with him because I had enough other colleagues who told me he's the best professor. And so I, I started taking classes with, classes with him, not because I like TV. In fact, I wasn't really a fan of TV, um, but I just wanted to work with good people. And I ended up working on my dissertation with him because I wanted to work with somebody I trusted and I liked. And so I found a topic that was in his area. And then over time, I fell in love with it. And my dissertation was on gender labor in Hollywood. Uh, and so I wrote about um, what's considered women's work or men's work in the industry and uh, looking at certain communities of workers. And I enjoyed it, but I was exasperated and depressed by it. And uh, during the time that I was studying media workers, I, and I got a job at USC teaching for two years. University of Sport Children yes, is its University technical name, Children, yes. but also known informally as the University of Southern California, a private school not far from downtown LA. That uh, has deep connections with George Lucas. So much so that at the graduation they play the Star Wars theme. <laughs> and deep connections to O.J. Simpson such that at graduation they don't mention him. Yes, that's very true. Um, that's very true. So, I... Uh, I, when I was at the University of Spoiled Children, I, that was the year of the Writers Guild strike, the 2007-2008 Writers Guild of America and, strike. And Miranda has a wonderful essay written with Ellen Sider on this strike that is available from an online quasi-academic, quasi-popular magazine called Flow. Uh, wonderful piece. Thank you. Yeah, uh, that was a very fun piece to write, and it actually emerged out of conversations that Ellen and I were having with screenwriting professors in the department um, as they were trying to teach their students. Uh, normally, a screenwriting professor will teach about the craft of screenwriting, and and you know, in some ways, they'll talk about how you pitch an article. Right. But they very rarely go into professional relationships with unions and labor and the, the kind of work of writing. Um, but suddenly they were talking to their students about not writing uh, during a strike. And essentially what had happened in previous strikes was that Studios would go to film schools and look for young people who wanted to get into the industry and um, buy scripts from them or work with them. And, and people who were desperate to get into the industry saw it as a wonderful opportunity and didn't realize that it was hurting the people that would become their colleagues and mentors down the road. Um, and so instead, during the strike, there was a strong campaign to teach students, especially students in the LA area, uh, not, you know, what the strike was about and essentially told people that they should not 
Uh, they shouldn't cross a picket line, work uh, right during the strike for a studio. Um, sorry. Because if they did, they might be denied access to becoming a union member down the road. So I'm, Ellen and I became very interested in this and interested in understanding what students knew about professionalization and what they knew about unionization and workers' rights. And so that's kind of where that project emerged from. Come, come. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> so very long story short, I fell in love with the project. I started talking to more and more writers. Uh, and learning the history of the Writers Guild. And while I looked at other guilds and unions, I had done research for my dissertation on the Costume Designers Guild. I had looked at a subsection of the Actors Guild in relation to stunt women and stunt workers. The Writers Guild, I realized these were my people, and quite a number of them had become friends um, just because I was from LA and knew a lot of people who were writers. And um, as the strike, I, well, even before the strike started, as negotiations started, I became very interested in negotiations and what was happening and started following the story and the narrative in the press and by different constituents, uh, by the studios and uh, by writers. And I started walking the picket line. And in that process, I realized there's an interesting story there. And, um, and that was the moment that I then went to my my former advisor, John Caldwell, and I said, I think I want to write a different book. Um, and I did. And it's done now. And now it just has to go through press, which takes way too long. <laughs> wow. So you did a bold thing. Which is to say, I did this dissertation, but I want to do something different with this book. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it, I think it's an important thing for people to think about, which is, do you still love the project? Is the project still where you want to go? And for a lot of people, they still love the project, but they want to take certain chapters in or out. Um, but for me, I just thought I would siphon off the chapters that I like and to turn it into um, chapters of other people's books or, or, you know, different things or um, journal articles. And I found, I fell in love. I fell in love with this book and it felt like I'm, it was meant to be. So. A Prof P. Yes. Where do you know Prof P from? How did you guys meet? I don't even, I guess through Jennifer Holt, right? And Professor Holt, another podcast victim. Yes, yes. And through being involved in a lot of industry research and overlapping in a lot of our research. Now, what's industry research? Share it with the group. Uh, industry research. Well, I think we both have done um, sort of histor somewhat historically oriented work um, and also some interviews with people in the industry and observation. Meaning, when you say the industry, sorry. sorry. In this particular context, Hollywood, uh, I, I'm much like Miranda coming from the same sort of uh, Southern California environment where I shorthand a lot of it. I just like. <laughs> Oh, and why not? I mean, I'll say the American media industry is definitely yeah. there is the New York piece of yeah. the work that we do. But, but you're talking about drama, not documentary or journalism, and you're talking about cinema and television, and you're talking about broadcast and cable, or have I got that wrong? Um, I would say, and 
correct me if I'm wrong, Miranda, but uh, probably both film and television, predominantly entertainment-oriented, um, sort of mainstream a lot of the time, although I write about, I guess, independent film to some extent as well. Yeah, I would agree. Well, why limit it to that? People who are, who are writers write stories that are docu for documentary, for sport, for news and current affairs. Aren't we, aren't you, is one, obeying a rather arbitrary set of distinctions that are generated because of an old school notion of guilt, or is that still real? I mean, take the situation of a show review, which some argue removes the writer from being the disempowered and often impoverished figure to being you know, at the epicenter of decisions when it comes to Bollywood so why do you not do sport, reality etc they've got scripts um, I was a bit confronting. I only got them to do this by saying there'd be nothing confrontational. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, I just turned around here and it was all friendly and I turned around. No, you, you, you sat down, you bugged everything up. Because John Corbyn, he's really going to make things difficult. Okay, so... Given that I've just embarrassed everybody, let's... No, no, no. I, so I, in my book, for example, or in my research, I, I definitely interview people who are news writers. Um, but the majority of the guilt uh, and the power in the guilt is mostly based toward entertainment. Writers, um, and, and that is not necessarily always been the case, but that is where it is. How it is now? How it is now? Now, tell us about this concept of a showrunner, which puzzles people outside the United States enormously. And those whom it doesn't puzzle inside the United States, it doesn't puzzle because they don't really understand it. Please explain. <laughs> oh, right. dear goodness. Oh, goodness. You can start with the history of Prof the term, B, and then I'll go back in. Prof B has just punted, and the ball's hitting on an inevitable trajectory oh, towards Prof P. This has to do with an article of our chat book chapter. <laughs> okay. Yeah, um, so... The showrunner, actually, I, I looked at the roots of the term, and it came about in the early 90s as an industry trade term, so it interestingly corresponded with um, sort of the shift in discourse to a certain type of quality television is very much tied to... Showtime, HBO... Um, and even prior to that, around ER and Friends were some of the first times it so was network. used. A lot of broadcast network when it was sort of in its must-see TV, quality TV kind of mode. Back when it could make those claims more easily, I guess. Could have fooled me, but anyway, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but obviously, as Miranda has done much more work in. Um, the roots of the practice of the role trace back much further. It just emerged as a label when it became valuable for the purposes of distinction and marketing, predominantly. Right. So a lot of what I have a chapter in my book that focuses a lot on the history of that, what's known as the hyphenate, and that's the way that it was considered within the guild and the industry is that you're a hyphenate, whether you're a hyphenate writer-director or a hyphenate writer-producer.
and the power and anxiety that provoked within the industry. Nowadays, we see the showrunner as something that's very powerful and exciting and the ideal of what you get to do. It's a, you know, you get to be one person that, you know, it sounds like a circus term to me. I always think of, you know, somebody who's the running the shows and the, you know, the center ring. But um, the reality is that for... Uh, film writers that suddenly got tied to TV writers within the same union. Film writers were used to considering producers as the enemy of shitbags. Exactly, that they are, you know, that they were the ones who were the um, the managers, uh, and they would strong arm laborers into doing what they wanted. And suddenly, now with TV writers and writer producers, who are often creators of series, they were uh, considered. Um, you know, dangerous, potentially dangerous, because they had so much power and that they might be able to um, push their writers into certain actions for or against the guilds. Usually they were a few actions against the guilds. Um, How did they get the money, the backing financially? And managerially also for that matter, yeah. to be like, such heavy hitters. Um, I think that it just came from the fact. I mean, a, a good example of a very early showrunner would be somebody like Jess Oppenheimer, yeah, who created I Love Lucy. Popular, so 60, 60 years ago. Right, exactly. Um, and Jess Oppenheimer had, had uh, before he came to TV, had made. Uh, radio shows, but uh, he came up with an idea for a program uh, to use uh, Lucille Ball again, and uh, he knew what he was doing. He made it for Desi Lou Productions, which was Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball, less named Desi Lou, their studio, and um, he was brought on as the creator, but he was also a producer and a writer, and so he knew the, he was the, the kind of visionary behind it, so it wasn't as if he finagled a role, but rather he was the person that they went to to um, conceive an event, an idea, and follow it through uh, at the right level. So Desi Arnaz might be the one who is making, you know, bringing in the money to the studio, uh, and Lucille Ball, obviously, from just the money that she was making as an actress. But that, but uh, Jess Oppenheimer was brought in front of the National Labor Relations Board. Because he was a managed labor and management at the same time. And the Writers Guild saw that as a serious problem. So there is this moment of the 1950s where they saw television producers as dangerous to the Writers Guild. And then you turn to the most recent strike, and the showrunners are the most powerful players before the Guild in terms of. Moving the negotiations forward. Wow. So, Lisa, in all this, tell us your story. So, you grew up not far from here. We're in Santa Barbara. Yes. And you're in Ventura. Did you also know at the age of six months that you wanted to write about Hollywood writing? Um, interestingly, uh, yeah, I, I, in high school, I was also uh, wanting to write about film. Yeah, well, that's obvious, right? <laughs> that hasn't changed. Um, 
uh, but wanting to write about film and TV. Um, and actually did even from that age for high school paper and that sort of thing. But um, Southern California listeners, if you've never been here, got a lot to answer for. I know, it's, it's horrifying. But um, actually, much like Miranda, I grew up with a lot of industry connections sort of externally in terms of my, um, my grandparents actually owned a deli um, right next to NBC Studios and they served all the, the staff there so they were like the typical, you know, Jewish immigrants that served, you know. Um, and uh, my other grandparents were uh, Thai manufacturers for a lot of people in the industry for specialty sort of stuff. So very much that narrative, again, of being grown up in it. Yeah, so I think I was equally immersed and had questions about it. Interesting, yeah. And so you went to college where? UCLA. Oh, sorry, you said UCLA. And then, I think I know this, you hit it. A little way. I head east. Yes. 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 So I did my master's and PhD at University of Texas, and then was at Georgia State University for a while, and now I'm back at UT Austin as a professor. So how did you choose your dissertation? So um, my dissertation topic was actually on the development of the Fox Broadcast Network, um, and. Uh, Oddly enough, it was, um, I did my master's thesis on Miramax and indie film, and I was very interested in how sort of niche targeting and niche marketing played out in television, and so looked at sort of a comparable case in TV, but obviously a very different context. What was the comparable case? Um, in terms of Fox Broadcasting being one of the first to sort of target beyond a mass audience. Now, obviously, the industrial and creative contexts are very different, but... I was interested in that. One of the strategies that Fox, owned by Rupert Murdoch, followed was to differentiate itself from others' listeners by engaging black interests, for example. Right, right. In right. Time. Right, right. And interestingly, I mean, you know, high culture, low culture, very different approaches, Fox Broadcasting versus Miramax, but in a lot of ways, the, the same slices of demographics are being pursued in very distinctive ways, you know. Yeah. So, all right, what turns you... I guess I would say that maybe in some weird ways our work is tied, and maybe you feel this way, I don't know, but I always thought that part of my love of the history of Los Angeles was the idea of the history of a company town. Yeah. That both of us had this similar experience yeah. of being in the industry or around it, but, but very much as with an academic mind. Yeah. So we saw it as a history and a culture that could be studied, but not as a thing that we wanted to do. We weren't aspirants in Making it, but both of us saw the culture of the industry, and uh, and, and I think yeah. that, that plays out in our work. Yeah, I mean, I th I think you put it really well because I, unlike most of my colleagues, friends, that sort of thing, I never had an interest in working in it. But it is fascinating from sort of anthropological and sociological perspective to explore. I mean, it's almost like growing up in a company town. You have that feeling of being a part of this popular. Culture, yeah, popular community. Yeah, not really wanting to be in it. Yeah, 
definitely. But you didn't exactly escape it with your dissertation. No, but I think that that's what's um, so pleasurable about it is that um, I get to think about it and I don't yeah. actually have to live and do it. <laughs> because I saw up close that it really isn't the lifestyle that seemed so ideal, perhaps for somebody that was far away from it and only saw the good parts. I saw a lot of the troubled, difficult parts um, for both individuals as well as for the families of individuals in it. So. I mean, that's amazing, really, to me, to have that distance and yet that proximity. Is that true for you too, Prof? It is. I mean, it's interesting because I, I almost tried to force myself into um, thinking I wanted to work in the industry when I was first out of college, so I did the internships and worked in public relations a little bit and just hated it miserably, and so I was more interested in exploring it from the more outside. What a local yeah, yeah. negation of centrality yeah I was able to you know I'm able to pursue a much wider expansive um, analysis study exploration I don't have to be in a little narrow compartment of work <laughs> so we've got about a quarter of an hour left I'd love to hear from both of you about future plans and designs my one oh hey why is that? You just got a mug. I just got a mug. Produced for advanced research by global in global community. Wow. Yeah, that's nice. I think Mike had one of these earlier. So tell me, guys, if you could, about your plans for the future. Do you want to start, yeah, yeah. Prof P? Um, <laughs> I like calling you Prof. Yeah, P. I'm usually called Dr. Pepper, Dr. P. No, no, just That's funny. Uh, especially now that I'm back in Texas, you know. Anyway, um, so in terms of for future research, I'm assuming. Oh, what you're already thinking about working on? What the heck am I doing these days? What is it exactly that you do? Goodness. Um, well, one thing I'm involved in uh, that we have uh, fortunately roped you, Dr. Miller, into is uh, launching a new media industries journal and trying to have a conversation that's uh, global and um, multi -method multi methodological. Um, looking at how different people can talk about industry research um, and sort of bringing all our conversations together. I know, isn't that exciting? No, it's not, it's not exciting. It is. What does industry research mean? Well, that's kind of what we want the journal to say, is what does it mean? Yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We have an idea of, we would call it chemistry or zoology. What do you think it I'm means? pulling faces. Uh, well, I associate it with an apolitical, functionalist drive to describe the operations of an industry rather than to embark on it from a critical perspective based on its class politics. Interesting. But I have the accent to go with that kind of gun. But, as a member of our editorial board... I'm totally faithful and supportive in every way. I would say that you serve as the uh, representative of the more critical stance that we hope that it encourages. Classic liberalism. 
<laughs> or it's pre-era Mexican Corporation. Oh, you don't like this? You have two options. We'll change it now for whatever you want. Or come back in a couple of weeks and just think about whether you care and then we'll change it. Well, what I think is interesting, too, is the idea of, you know, both of our anthologies came out around the same time. Right, that, right. Um, the anthology that I edited, production studies, and yours, the um, media industries book, um, kind of came at it as a top-down, bottom-up model of studying similar things, but right. from very different perspectives. Right. Uh-huh. And, um, and what I appreciate is, I mean, and the difficulty is finding a language to talk about what this is. Um, and what I, well, I respect the choice that ultimately seems to be going, that it's a conversation about media industries. I feel like what's lost is production studies does not define itself as and in, the only studies right. industry right. production, and a production can be three people, and, you know, in you know, in a you know, high school doing a production, right? Um, and so that to me is something that, that I do feel is lost in in looking at an industry. Now, I also see what's lost in the idea of looking only at production studies and not understanding the industries is some issues of policy and regulation um, and so somewhere in between right there's something really exciting but each side struggles that we're, we all I think have a similar goal of understanding something beyond the content of what right thinking about work. But does the work, in that sense, because of the importance of its reception and response of listeners, readers, viewers, visitors, whatever it is, in a sense undermine the notion of the church as, yes, generating vanishing points in museums or cultural institutions, generating vanishing points or thoughts of reflection in the community. Um, but at the same time, understanding that, knowing how it operates as an analyst, can bind to that very consumer sovereign neoliberal perspective. Where's the critical edge? Where does that derive from? Is it just because the word labor is used automatically? No, I mean, I mean, no, 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 I, I entails a certain commitment to wage justice. Or am I just being very out of date? No, I think it's. I mean, I think it's a fascinating question, and I think it's central to you know saying something beyond just. You know, is this good labor, bad labor? Is it exciting work that's being done? Um, there are so many people who are desperate for work in the industry now that um, any kind of push toward um, theorizing that work uh, becomes an act that is a little bit defiant because it is imagining that what you're doing isn't all for fun, that it isn't all creative, um, and which everybody knows but doesn't like to talk about. But, uh, 
it is complicated, and I, I think that there's a lot more work to be done on thinking about. Um, and and I think that that's why I love this project of working on the guild because there are many people in the writers' guild who, when I went to them and I said I'm writing a book on mainstream writers, yeah. mainstream the guild, they're like, I didn't want to talk nothing about that organization. You know, I'll talk to you about my work, but like, I don't, I am a political, you know, um, and that to me is just as important as the people that are wow. political. Now, Lisa, it's just you're being challenged to pick up the baton at the stump. goodness. <laughs> well, as they say in hey, I wasn't I wasn't Danger Man, no, the Super Danger Man in the US. Yeah. It's on you. It's on me. What What do you want me to follow up on? Well, the idea that further work needs to be done by diverse hands yeah. into this aspect of cultural production. So if you were talking to a very young person who was interested in making their niche in this domain, or if you were thinking in five years' time, could you lay out a plan of action for yourself, what would be the lacuna? That you, that you would like to see covered. Oh, goodness. I'm so glad you got that question. <laughs> the, the perfect question after you've had a couple of drinks in this late of the day. Um, yeah, exactly. It's for some people. Goodness. Uh, Moving right along? Yeah. Let's see. I think that... Um, I don't even know where to start uh, in terms of uh, what I would want them to be dealing with or what I would want them to know. Uh, obviously, I'm hoping that discussions of industry can bring together everything from policy to labor to uh, creative authority to issues of, well, even what you're doing lately in terms of uh, exploitation and uh, environmental destruction. Right. <laughs> right on, baby. I love it. I love it when you talk like that in the early evening. I told you before. I'll say it again. Um, I mean, I think I'm I'm particularly fascinated right now in terms of talking about the material consequences of a lot of what we're doing, and I and I'm really glad that you and Rick Maxwell and some other people are introducing that much more into the conversation. That's an interesting one, isn't it? I think. The, well, anything about me is enormously of interesting. Inherently so. Yes. Riveting Miller is actually what I'm known as out in the traps there, in the street corners and so forth. No, but in all seriousness, I think there is a broadening of interest in what counts as knowledge within the screen studies humanities domain. Because I don't think people have got much of an audience for this kind of discussion. the strike just seven minutes. No, and I think um, I appreciate your comment today at the conference that we're at, um, reminding people about the 1980 strike, uh, which is, you know, there are reasons why these moments become really critical yeah. to reminding scholars that this is not just art or not just something that should be discussed as a creative form, but that there's actually labor and Yeah, like why the stories are so... That's not just the final product, but how that product is made and how that product is let me ask you something, Miranda. Where would you place in the hierarchy a focus on encoding, institutional arrangements, 
semiotic style in DPI when it comes to trying to assign to a text a zero signifier where there is no further signification because this is really what it means. Is that a great, that was helpful or not? Is that entirely mad? I know it hurts the brain at this hour, doesn't it? I was like, wait a second. We had a little bit of a conversation about how many glasses of wine I had. Okay. Moving right along. Right, right. Start again. I suppose what I'm trying to get at. Working out, and this gets back to really being, to being distressed and distressed. What is the political valence of production stances? I think that's really what I want to when I look at the people who are doing this work, mm -hmm. they are coming from such different angles mm -hmm. that I would hate to try to say that they're all attempting to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, but what I appreciate about it uh, is the idea that it as a whole pulls away from yeah. the idea of a celebrated final sure. product that is sealed yeah. to something where you're pulling at the seams in a very different way than has been done by other theoretical models. Right. So instead of... Fancy. She's fancy. That was good. Um, yeah. That was damn fancy. <laughs> Keep going. So it is, um, you know, the pleasure that I have in looking at the diversity of work that's coming out of people who are doing production studies is how they are reimagining everything from ideas of genre right. to ideas of femininity to ideas of identity to um, what is, um, you know, what is work, what is, I mean, Vicky's book, uh, Vicky May. Vicky Mayer, another podcast victim from the past. Um, you know, her book is reimagining terms um, about what it is to be a maker of yeah. television. Um, literally, in this case, in part, a manufacturer exactly. of the set. Yeah, exactly. And therefore, yeah. what I enjoy about this work yeah. is that it is a constant state of... Um, of learning and exploration that at its heart is a political statement. I think. Mm, political statement. Yes, I mean. Say I some more about that while I have one more vegan Oreo. <laughs> we're still recording, we're still going live. There's no pressure, but entertain your okay, public. Good, good. Anybody want another vegan Oreo? Oh, goodness, I'm waiting for dinner. <laughs> yeah, I think I'll wait for you. I'm cheese related to her. Um, I, <laughs> no, I think that. that uh, the idea of looking outside of a text and looking at something, um, looking beyond outside and through it is in itself an act of allowing for conversation and debate and discussion that is, you're saying, mm -mm, and you were away getting a cookie. You don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> anyway. 
Uh, but I, I, what I would say is, uh, you were asking where where we're going next, and um, I'm just, I'm excited to see how diverse. I, I don't know if you're having the experience you're because you're working on a second um, industries collection, yeah. collection, and we're we're working on a second production studies collection. And to me, what I'm so thrilled about is that you know we we did a call for papers and we had 75 people contribute um, from all different countries doing work in all different media and to me that's thrilling is the idea of a conversation that pushes boundaries in so many different directions. This is my moment we've got a couple minutes left for you to fill us in on these book projects of the past. In other words, books and other publications that can be found by your now immensely keen and exciting listening audience. <laughs> so Elisa, I know that you secured some of the greatest writers in the United States. Yeah. For a book you co-edited. Not just in the United States. Globally. Um, Globally famous. Yes. I mean, one of, one of our very earliest supporters um, and terrific contributors was a man that might be interviewing me right now. <laughs> a man whose work had to be edited within an inch of his these something or other. And I highly recommend looking at his essay, not only because it is terrific, but also because it has a great list of resources at the end. Okay, so, but more seriously, you <laughs> and Jennifer Holt, yes. with whom you'll be sleeping this evening. I will be sleeping with her dog, but, you know, let's <laughs> oh, be clear about that. Right. Oh, let's be so clear about that. Right. <laughs> that makes everybody feel a lot happier. <laughs> makes us all feel oh, a little more nervous. I know. Also it, yeah, I, yeah right. I think I'm less relaxed than nervous. And <laughs> anyway, I'll just move a little further this way towards Miranda. Hey, well, I guess it's okay now. But in a few hours, it won't be so. Oh, I'm gonna. No, I'm happy. To, I'm I'm right there with you. You're stuck in the middle. Yeah, there you go. So, this this book you edited with Jennifer Holt is called Media Industry. Yes, history, theory, and method for the full name. It's a terrific resource. Thank so, and Miranda just mentioned some other projects that Indeed. you've been involved in. Oh, yeah. So I did write a book that came out a couple of years ago, apparently. Um, you've not seen it. <laughs> no, I have seen it. Um, it's called Indie Inc. And it's about indie film and rethinking uh, sort of the transformation of Hollywood in the 1990s. What does... I know this is stupid to say, but remember a lot of people listening, the majority of people listening almost are not English as a first this language. This is fine, yeah. Indie, Indie means independent, but it doesn't quite mean doesn't what that quite might suggest that. in right. terms of a dictionary definition, does right, it? Right, right. And so I, I basically look at the... Um, sort of the circulation of discourses yeah. around indie and independent. And I love Foucauldian chicks. Do you wear black t-shirts on the weekends <laughs> as well? This is good as a check. I don't know. <laughs> and, and just think about how that was uh, yeah. exploited as a marketing term yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. And that's the name Indie Incorporated. Indie right. Incorporated. Indie Inks. Indie Inks. Independent Incorporated. Yes. Wonderful. Yes. Who published that book? That was University of Texas Press. And now there's an edited, another editor collection, is that right? I am in the very early stages of working on a 
new industries collection. With Jennifer Holt has told me that she is um, putting her editorial hat down, and so she has. Uh, You're doing it with Bodie Holt. I am not doing it with Bodie Holt. Um, <laughs> you were doing it with, with Bodie in a couple of hours. I'm sure he had, would have pearls of wisdom to contribute. However, um, he's a wise soul. He is, and he, calming too. Um, it is with Patrick Vonderu from Stockholm University that we are in the early stages of talking about what that will be. That's exciting. And Miranda, if we can finish with you, the book is coming out right. in a little bit. In a little bit, yes. And it's called? So I have um, the book that I co-edited with uh, Vicki Mayer and John Caldwell, and that's Production Studies, um, and that is available. And... Uh, and good bookstores nowhere near any of you because there are no good bookstores. In fact, there are no bookstores. Exactly. Unless you're living in Paris, in which case they're found by the state. Exactly. And, um, and we are in the middle of doing another um, Production Studies 2, the sequel. Production Studies 2. That we'll be doing. And that is actually going to be co-edited with Vicki Mayer uh, and Bridget Connor. And... Uh, John Caldwell, I believe, will be designing our cover. Oh, again. cool! So he's involved, but uh, but in a different way. And um, so that's that's we're working on that right now. But the my book uh, is going to be coming out in November, December, twenty fourteen. Twenty fourteen. With which house? Uh, with Rutgers University Press. And what is the difference between industry studies and production studies, guys? Can you help me out with this? Next question, please. Okay. Um, so the way I put industry studies is, and Miranda did a really good job of explaining production studies as encompassing beyond industry in part. So um, industry studies I see as one way to shorthand saying we don't want to have to elaborate on political economy versus cultural studies and that dynamic anymore, but a way of kind of moving past that conversation to be thinking about um, – you know, how issues of ownership, structure, regulation, policy, top-down, blah, 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 blah. Um, connect with more sort of bottom-up uh, types Initiatives. of issues. Right. Yeah. Could you give me an example? Um, so you could both be looking, for example, at just, just out of the blue, at um, Fox Broadcasting and its ownership by News Corp and its sort of uh, situated, uh, its exploitation of sort of regulatory conditions globally, but also be considering sort of the kinds of content that was being produced, the kinds of discourse that circulated about it, and and ideally, if production studies is coming into it in some capacity, um, maybe doing interviews or observation, thinking about like how people on the ground are dealing with what the company is doing. Right, right, right. Yeah. I think that's excellent. Well done. And in fact, you're going to be writing about that precisely for our book, yeah. Production Studies oh, yeah. the So yeah, she's going to be looking, explaining that relationship between production studies. I still don't understand it. Production studies versus industry studies. I get the desire to lose the opposition, right. political economy, cultural studies. 
So I'm, I'm trying to shorthand it, which is probably not helpful. But I do think that production studies, as Miranda said in particular, might not necessarily be dealing with issues of industry per se, with not necessarily commercial context. So it's, it could in part be involving creative labor. I also think methodologically production studies tends to rely more on interviews and observation and dealing with people frequently that, and I feel like I should be saying this, I feel like a Miranda should be saying this, but dealing with people that are sort of on the ground work working in their sort of lived conditions, right, 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 as opposed to more top-down models of mm. control. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think that they're coming from different different sides, a kind of top-down versus bottom-up model of studying uh, work. And, you know, and, and in the case, sometimes it does end up being the same industry that we're studying, but, but not necessarily. Yeah. Well, and who brings these books out? Who, what, what? Who brings these books out? Publisher? Uh, oh, Rutledge is doing our book. And I, Rutgers is doing my own book. And, did you, if I'm wrong, did you do one with Blackboard? No, we didn't. We did uh, We did our book with uh, Rutledge. Okay, okay. And, but Ours was with Blackboard. Yours was with Blackboard, the media industry. My next one will be with a player to be named later. Oh. Mysterious, clandestine, slightly naughty. <laughs> it certainly got me a little hot on the collar. I am excited. Ooh. I can't wait for the next episode. I know, to out. be continued. To be continued. Well, I'd like to thank both of you for giving up your mid evening for this purpose. It was really wonderful. And a special shout out to you, Miranda, for joining us. Nowhere so far, but maybe somewhere eventually. <laughs> and, but also many thanks to Yamina, yeah, really wonderful to chat, and it's been a joy. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Let's go eat. <laughs>